Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. A Tuesday tumble. Stocks kicking off September in the red, and we've got one chart that shows we could be headed for a point of no return. Also ahead, investors slamming the brakes on Uber and Lyft. Why these two stocks could signal a rough road ahead for IPOs. And later, Brexit drama heating up in a big way today, and the currency market is taking notice. We'll break down all of the big headlines. But we begin with today's sell-off. Stocks tanking, uh, taking a nosedive as a new round of tariffs kicks in on China, and the U.S. manufacturing sector contracts for the first time in more than three years. All three major averages ending the day in the red. So is this just the beginning of a bigger September slide? Guy. Well, we sort of, and, and hi, Melms. We talked about it last week. Listen, quite frankly, I thought we'd rally today. I thought Thursday, Friday made sense that we rallied. I thought we'd rally again today. And then towards the end of the later part of this week, early next week, we'd start to slide. Things are not bullish for stocks right now. I mean, if the only case for bullish in stocks is that valuations are reasonable and rates are going lower, I think you're on pretty thin ice. It feels to me like the market needs to have the next leg down. What I've said before and what I'll say again, I think the market bottom will be defined when the VIX trades on or around 30. We're at basically 20 now. So you do the math. I think there's a huge move coming, and I think it's going to sort of begin in the middle part of this month. Dan? Yeah, so, you know, Carter was on the show on Friday. He was talking about this range that we've been in the S&P 500 since that first gap down August uh, 1st on those announcements of new tariffs. And we've really just been banging around in what feels like a 75-point range in the S&P 500. I think the thing that you really want to watch right here is yields. Obviously, September 18th is going to be a huge focus with what the Fed does, whether they cut 25 basis points or 50 basis points. Either way, I think the market is either um, disappointed or they're freaked out. And so, to me, you know, I think that that... 200-day moving average in the S&P 500, down at 2,800. That's a really big level. So if we go there first, I think you want to keep a really close eye. And then rates, 10-year Treasury yield trading where it did today, I think a new cycle low, 145 or something like that. I think you want to keep an eye on that because if that starts going precipitously lower, I think the S&P 500 falls. Well, that's almost like a, a no-win situation for stocks, whether the Fed cuts by 25 or, or 50. from Dan. <laughs> <But> I mean, <laughs> well, that, that's true. But I mean, there are there are a lot of bulls out there who say, you know, lower rates, the great, great for valuations. We can have valuations that go higher. But are we at a point where Rates are so low, they mean rates are low because the economy is slowing. Well, we've had a lot of uh, strategists come on the market on our show and talk about the market in the context of a Fed that's maybe being preemptive. So 50 is not in there and they go 50. Um, Dan thinks that actually bad news will actually be bad news. Um, up until this point, a Fed that actually, and I mean historically for points where you saw the Fed go into an easing cycle, if they got ahead of the market, uh, and even though we heard at the last uh, excuse me, easing, that it was really a mid-cycle adjustment, that would probably be good for stocks. But, but what, what Dan and what Carter on Friday and what, what people should be note, which, what is noteworthy is 24 sessions of essentially 150-point range on the S&P, which is pretty extraordinary considering the elevated vol within that time. I, I would just go to say, if you want to find a silver lining, the silver lining is that during this time, we've devalued the yuan, we've taken yields to, you know, effectively two and a half, almost three-year lows. You've brought the dollar up over 90, and the dollar is typically a wrecking ball. You've had the ECB kind of, you know, scramble in place and, and, and possibly deliver almost nothing next week when they report. And yet here we are, 4% from all-time highs. I, I, my guess is, if you're a technical guy, you're looking at that and saying that this is very bullish when you consider sentiment. What if you're a value guy? Well, uh, you know, I am always value-oriented, and normally things trade down a lot, and then I think, all right, time to start buying. I'm not buying anything right now. I'm really concerned. I think, you know, we're, what, 3.5% off the high, which really is 
nothing. And I don't like how we set up in a, I mean, to me, the trade issues are front and center. And I, I like to, you know, base valuations on fundamentals. So we're in a bit of a period where we don't have fundamentals right now. Most of the companies have already reported. And I don't even know if it'll matter how good the third quarter will be because we have these, this tariff situation. It'll be much more about what's the guidance, what are expectations for the fourth quarter, how are companies feeling. And I cannot help but think that this prolonged trade war, and, and Guy's been calling it for a long time, not going to be settled in the near term, that that will have cumulative effects of uh, hesitation mm-hmm. by CEOs, maybe the consumer. We haven't seen that yet. The consumer is still out there, but it just makes me concerned, and I'm, I'm not out there buying. I, to your point, the VIX, I'm surprised the VIX isn't higher. VIX too low. Yeah. yeah. What are valuations right now on the S&P 500? 17, 17, 17 and a half, which is not somewhere. ridiculous. I mean, historically, right. it's pretty reasonable, I would think. And given the environment we are with rates, it's probably very attractive. But, you know, markets go down for other reasons than valuation. I mean, I'm not suggesting this is 08, 09. But quite frankly, valuations had nothing to do with the solves we saw then. So, you know, valuation argument I understand, but it's not necessarily the right one. With that said, if you're looking for something as an indication, and Dan has talked about this, the Russell as measured by the IWM, I mean, that's been a very good leading indicator. And 145, which is we're in a whisper of that, I mean, that's sort of your line in the sand. So I think if that were to break below 145, it's going to make a run towards the December low. A run towards the December low is around 130, and I think that drags the S&P down. So it's interesting. A lot of people are trying to look at data points to try to figure out when in time a recession, right? And I think there's some stuff in the market that's telling you that things are topping out. You just mentioned small caps. If you look at the transports overlay, that chart for the Russell 2000, they're both down about 15% from their 52-week highs. Then look at the KRE. That's the regional banking index. Also down about 15, 16%. It's the same chart. It's the same wedge. It's approaching really important technical support. Look at the IBB. That's biotech. There's a lot of stuff that is in major correction, not acting particularly well. So I think there are some kind of tea leaves in the market if you want to look at them. By the time you piece together all those economic data points, it tells you pinpoints that we are going to have a recession at some point in 2020 or 2021. It's going to be too late. And I'm just going to tell you this. The last two times that we have had recessions in this country, the S&P 500 has been cut in half. Both times, 2000 to its lows in 2002, and then 2007 highs to the lows in 2009. That's just a fact. That's what happens when we do this. So, We've got some breaking news from the Fed. Let's get straight to Steve Leisman with the details. Steve. Melissa, thanks. Boston Federal Reserve President Eric Rosengren in a late speech is pretty much unconvinced about the need for any more rate cuts. He says, uh, should the risks that he talks about, the trade war, global economic weakness, become a reality in U.S. economic data, then he says the Fed should ease aggressively. But so far, economic forecasts, the level of the market, he talks about the level of stocks, he talks about credit spreads. So, so far, they do not indicate the kind of weakness that uh, everybody is so afraid of. He does say that the trade disruption and the global weakness are the biggest risk to the U.S., but he's still expecting 2% growth, which is slightly above the potential uh, in the second half. And he says it's, uh, you know, right around his potential range. Uh, gradual slowing of GDP is what he expected, not a signal of a coming recession. Now, you may compare and contrast that with St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard, who earlier today suggested the Fed go 50. So you either get nothing, you get 25, or you get 50. Melissa, back to you. 
So when he says that the Fed should cut aggressively if the if the risk to the U.S. economy materializes, right. what's your sense of what that means? I mean, it's it's not a mid-cycle adjustment and it's a, a string of cuts. Because as you had mentioned this morning, Steve, we're already expecting 100 basis points of cuts between now and right. April. So more right. aggressive than that is I don't know what. You know, um, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. The first thing is, for a guy like Rosengren, I think other members of the board, does their outlook for the economy come down substantially? They're still expecting 2% growth. All the folks who don't want to cut that we talked to in Jackson Hole and since are people who are expecting 2% growth, which is what they had expected. It's also what they think the potential of the economy is. Uh, those who think looking for weaker growth, they, they would uh, be looking for greater or, or more cuts. And the weakness would show up in stocks, they would think. They would show up in uh, employment, and it would show up in the GDP numbers. All right. Steve, thank you. Pleasure. Steve Leisman, how does this factor in? We've got a Fed meeting in a couple of weeks or so. It's, it's massive for the market. I mean, Dan was right to at least highlight that the, you know, the, your decision tree is, is certainly, I, I think there's going to be volatility based upon this Fed. I, I believe it's going to be harder for the Fed to, to appease everybody here. And we've seen for a couple meetings in a row that ultimately uh, it's not been that easy for the Fed to, quote unquote, thread the needle, a term that's way over you. There's, there's, there's no fabric you could knit right now that would allow these guys to actually get this thing. What I want to say about the market is that the other side of all we hear about is that you actually see the S&P of 12 to 18 months after an inversion. Think about the stock market and the economy. Typically, the stock market bottoms six months before the economy does. So if you think you know, that this is going to be a nasty, nasty you know, pullback, then obviously you could say that this is going to get much, much worse and stocks still have a ways to go because the economy is not within six months. But if you think that this is not going to be a deep recession, that we're going to get a couple points, we get a trade deal, you can make some arguments, again, that historically the stock market has done what it's supposed to do and maybe all it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you think about recession, you yeah. see this consumer and the consumer is still very strong. Right. I mean, you know, how, how does that happen? happen? I don't know. I was looking, I actually was looking up today, what causes a recession? And it's like high interest rates, high unemployment, Right. Uh, nope, we don't we have those. those. Right. And we don't have some of those fundamental pillars. One thing I will point out is it interesting, though. The DAX, even in the last year, even if rates have gone sub-zero and now significantly sub-zero, the DAX has rallied over the last year. So lower rates supporting valuations. I get I, I mean. Yeah. Well, it loves a week. You guys are forgetting yeah. one point about this. But so we are also putting this recession thing out way in the future. And to Tim's point, the, the markets, risk assets start going lower. This negative wealth effect plays into the recession big time, okay? And then you start overlaying some of the things that we're talking about with this PMI data that we see. That means that if we're going to go into that sort of manufacturing recession, that means less hours work, that means job cuts eventually. It just starts happening, little chink by chink, you know, like that sort of thing. So to me, I listen, no one's going to be able to put their finger on it, but I think there's enough data here to suggest that if this trade war goes on, cut to zero, have a ball. It doesn't matter because global growth is slowing right now. Like and we were, have a ball. Well, no, I'm just saying, know. but it he's, doesn't matter because frustrated. but the he's last two times it. when the Fed got really aggressive cutting rates, they went to 1% in 2001 and they went to zero in 2008. It didn't matter. The S&P still gotten cut in half. Well, the, so that, that's the point. It just doesn't matter. I agree. With you. And, and the wealth effect just quickly of, of markets is the, and what Rosengren talked about right now, it actually feels pretty good for investors. And that wealth effect has not bit. Um, but the dollar is probably the biggest drag in the economy. The conditions are fine. Well, our next guest says the Fed can keep cutting rates here. Um, and actually, we have some breaking news. Sorry. We're going to go straight to Wilfred Frost with news on Brexit. Wilfred. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, so we're awaiting the result of that vote in Parliament where rebel MPs were trying to seize control 
from the government, from Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, of the agenda, and they have succeeded. The rebels have succeeded and defeated the government. 328 votes to 301, so a majority of 27. Quite a few uh, of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's own uh, Conservative MPs must have voted against him for that to take place. What does this mean now for Brexit? It means that tomorrow there'll now be a vote aimed at tying Prime Minister Boris Johnson's hands to take no deal off the table because he has lost tonight's vote. It's highly likely tomorrow's vote will go very similarly to today's, that the same rebels would once again vote against Boris Johnson and his hands would be tied to prevent no deal. Uh, he's speaking at the moment and he's likely outlining uh, the fact that he expects to fire those Tory rebels from his party and this all increases the likelihood uh, of the, the country heading towards a general election in the coming weeks because the government has just lost a very significant vote uh, and the first big defeat of the re relatively new Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I don't know if we can check in on the British pound, which uh, earlier in today's session fell below the 120 handle. Uh, it's well above that today. It recovered intra-session and uh, hasn't moved much on this vote. This vote was kind of expected, though a bigger defeat than perhaps Prime Minister Boris Johnson was uh, expecting. Certainly a bigger defeat than he wanted to see. Melissa? So, Wilford, when you say further elections, down, I mean, if, if the vote tomorrow basically ties Boris Johnson's hands further, that means that he is in jeopardy? Uh, no, it doesn't mean he's in jeopardy okay. immediately. Kind of conversely, uh, because his hands have been tied, he is expected to personally seek an election uh, so that he could get a fresh mandate and perhaps a majority to untie his hands, as it were, himself. Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion, though, that that election would be granted. To, to get an election that he seeks himself, he requires a two-thirds majority, a big hurdle, uh, of course, whilst Parliament's so divided, though it is expected uh, that if he tabled it, those who have been calling for change would be uh, kind of inclined to vote for an election. Having, having said they want change, they could hardly say, oh, but we don't now want an election. That said, the first step tomorrow is the actual vote on whether or not no deal will be taken off the table. The expectation is the same rebels that voted against the uh, government today would vote against them tomorrow. So that, that's largely sort of expected to be a foregone conclusion tomorrow. And then the, ex, the next thing to focus on is, does the uh, Prime Minister seek and get granted a general election or not? Got it. Okay, Wilford, thank you. Wilford Frost with the latest developments on Brexit. So if a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit is off the table, well, it should be very interesting, easy meeting next week. <laughs> right? I mean, but is any of this, again, there's no, there's no real... The, the bad stories outweigh the good stories right now, in my opinion. Again, the market's hanging in there, and that's the ultimate judge and jury. The fact that we're within 3% of an all-time high, people say, well, it's sort of shed all these negative news. It's looked past it. The market must be fundamentally strong. And it's hard to argue against that. But again, with all these headlines out there, at a certain point, it matters. And again, I will say, and Karen made the point, the VIX at 20 is too low. The VIX, in my opinion, will print 30. And when it does, that should be the culmination of the sell for this market. I just think, though, that a, in, the, in the micro of this moment, what the pound means to me is the pound is a risk currency. So seeing the pound break through 119 was a very bad risk moment overnight. It coincided with, you can argue who's the tail, who's the dog. 
But I want to see the pound. If I'm looking to take on risk, I want to see the pound back over 121. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Up next, more bad news for Boeing. We'll tell you what sent the stock into some major headwinds today and later protests turning violent in Hong Kong. The one sector seeing a direct impact from all the unrest. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. More bad news for Boeing. The stock under pressure today on a report that the 737 MAX might not return to service until 2020. Phil LeBeau is in Niagara Falls with the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. This report by the Wall Street Journal highlights something that's been simmering under the surface when it comes to the 737 MAX. Will regulators around the world, whether it's the FAA, the Europeans, China, Canada, Brazil, will they all be on the same page when it comes to recertifying the 737 MAX? Now, just as a refresher, this is what Boeing's expectation is. Sometime this month or early next month, it will apply for recertification. And it's Boeing's expectation that shortly after that, the plane will be recertified. And then sometime in the fourth quarter, it will return to service. Now, for airlines, they continue to move back their schedule for when they expect the MAX to fly again. Remember, we heard over the weekend from American Airlines, it has moved back the MAX on its schedule to at least December 3rd. Last week, United moved it back to December 19th, and we know for some time, Southwest has pushed it all the way back to the beginning of January. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, while it was under pressure today, in part because of this report, but the market overall, remember that most people look at the stock and they say, Eventually, because we have not seen mass cancellations, in fact, we haven't seen any cancellations, this is a delayed cash flow game. And the question is, when does the cash flow pick up when those deliveries return? And again, this all hinges on whether or not regulators start to sign off on the max recertification sometime in the fourth quarter. Melissa? Nothing, Phil, in that could U.S. regulators approve the 737 max for a return to flight? And they fly in the United States, but not overseas? Yes, definitely a possibility. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens, that the FAA says, you know what, we're comfortable with this. Now, in the past, Melissa, when the FAA made a decision, 99% of the time, the rest of the world went along with it. That's not going to be the case this time with the MAX. Now, there certainly will be some regulators in other countries who may say, sure, it's good enough for the FAA, and we've looked at the data. It's good enough for us as well. But don't be surprised if the Europeans and the Chinese both say, we're not entirely convinced we're going to take a little bit more time. All right. Phil, thank you. Enjoy the falls. Phil LeBeau. Niagara Falls on the Canada side. Uh, Boeing shares are now down about 20% since the worldwide grounding of the 737 MAX. So what should we expect for Boeing? And is it as simple as a delayed cash flow story, as Phil was saying? No, I don't think it is. I mean, if you get into production lines, if you actually get a big enough of a delay here, you could actually have a production cut, which then gets into labor pools. And, and they, they want to hold on to this labor pool, but it would then eat into your free cash flow story, which I think is still alive and well in this name. And, and until we know there's something else going on other than the microprocessor issues, I, I, they said they were coming sometime in mid-September was my understanding. You know, I, I still don't know that this is a reason to be overly concerned. So basically they cut production and they risk losing workers to other manufacturers potentially. And then when they're back up and running, they can't replace those workers as easily. I, I, honestly, I can't speak to whether they'll get these workers yeah. back. I can speak to the fact that the production line is going to take some time to restart. They're going to do everything they can not to cut production. Obviously, the China situation is not helping either. So yeah. it's not just the 737. I mean, you can't discount the fact 
that this China thing has dragged on a lot longer. I'll be the first to tell you, when this took place, I guess, late February is when this Boeing news came out, I thought it would be rectified within a month and a half, two months max. And here we are now in September. Nice, still, nice use yeah. of max, max right there, max. by the way. Oh, max yeah. is that. I think that was <laughs> stop right there. partly intentional. But with that said, you know, when it traded down that day, it traded down to 360. We're basically at 360 now. So although the stock has gone either side of it, we're exactly where we were five or six months ago. I can make a bullish case, but I can understand if people say, you know what, there's too much uncertainty here. We have to wait in the name. I don't think today is, is additional uncertainty. When, when the airlines reported their earnings, they talked about they're not sure exactly when they're going to have the 737 MAX. And so, I mean, December or January, I don't really think it makes that much difference. I do think that the certification is the critical issue. The stock will trade up if they get that. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that Phil left off in saying that, that usually the FAA's word was as good as, you know, the, right. the, they have 400 of these planes that are grounded. They have orders for 4,500 of them. This plane came into existence because the Boeing company was hustling to catch up with Airbus's A320. Is there a scenario where they don't get the certification? There's serious problems with this mechanism that, that helps, you know, kind of move these motors and stuff like that. And maybe they just need to shift gears, you know, no pun intended. So I don't know. I mean, the, the, it seems like a really weird story. The other thing I got to tell you, very curious, Phil LeBeau up in Niagara Falls. Do you think he met all those girlfriends you had from Niagara Falls back in high school for all those years back in the 70s? What are we talking about? <laughs> See, don't go I'm glad there. this went over my don't head. Go there. No idea what you're talking about. Really? Go there. The 70s. Oh, I wasn't in nice to have girlfriends. I was. She lives in Canada. You remember Niagara Falls? Nobody? Anyway. Don't bring me in on this. You can read more about Boeing on our website, CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. All in on Amazon. One top-ranked analyst says the stock is set to soar. So is now a prime time to get in. We'll debate it. And later, Uber and Lyft hitting the skids today. Why these two stocks could be telling the rest of the IPO market to buckle up. Stick with us. Fast Money returns right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Mark is having a rough sell-off today to start the month, and our next guest says there could be more pain ahead. Let's bring in Dan Suzuki, portfolio strategist at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, guys. Um, so what is the, the catalyst that keeps a sell-off going? I, I agree with everything that guy said. I mean, always, but you know, especially today, because what do, you, what do you have to hang your hat on? Why be a hero today when all the news is really bad? I mean, our view is a profit. Like this, this market this year has been riding on hope, right? Three hopes. Hope that earnings was going to bottom and rebound. Hopes that the Fed was going to come in and save the day. And hope that, that we're going to get trade resolution. I think all of those things have got called into question. And the data on profits, which is the most important part of it, is horrible. I mean, we just got the ISM number out today. Really bad. And you guys were talking earlier about the consumer. You know, that's the shining horse, the thing that's holding up this economy. I don't think the consumer is that good. If the consumer is so good, why is consumer discretionary? Why are their earnings contracting as of the second quarter before the tariffs hit? You know, why do we have this big slowdown in the services uh, PMI, you know, one of the biggest you've seen in the last few years? I mean, all these things are telling you that things aren't that great in the economy. It's not just an industrial part. Um, and you have to go back and look historically. When you see slowdowns, the consumer is always lagging. If you look at consumer confidence, it's always high before the peaks of market. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's a good indicator to hang your hat on. I'm looking for anything that actually leads earnings to tell me that things are turning around. I just don't see those signs. 
any indicator that I look at, whether it's core crude PPI or you know the, the actual earnings data themselves, PMI, ISM, you name it, durable goods, all this stuff is going the wrong direction. So why hang your hat on this hope trade uh, when there's just no data to support a rebound anytime soon? So everything you're saying kind of music to my ears because I, I agree with you. But at some point, are there companies that you would find, all right, the value is so compelling here. I understand there's all these mm-hmm. bearish you know, elements to the story, but... At yeah. some point, valuation is such that... It's, so, you, so, you know, RBA, we're a macro firm, right? So we look at things from a 50,000-foot view, and there's a very strong, you know, history of, of when the profit cycle is slowing, defensive, higher-quality sectors and, and companies always outperform. And you're seeing, that, uh, you're seeing that right now, and you pretty much always see that. So we think there's a good case to be made for continuing to be overweight, healthcare, staples, real estate, and utilities. Now, obviously, the first thing that one of you is going to come back with is that these are really expensive. Well, I looked at the history of this. Part of the reason that they look expensive is because you're looking at them, the defensives relative to the cyclicals. Now, the cyclicals, you can't look at cyclical earnings like that. Anybody who's covered CAT would know that you actually want to sell it when it's, when it's uh, cheap and buy it when it's expensive because you're talking about peak earnings. So if you look at the U.S. machinery sector, you know, it didn't look cheap, as in his traded at a discount to history, until 2005 and 2006, and it didn't get, uh, sorry, it didn't get expensive. It was, uh, and it didn't get uh, looking cheap until 2009, right? So that's the typical sector. And so you're looking at defensives relative to this. I looked at the history of the last three or four cycles. The defensives almost always look expensive going into it, um, and, and they actually still outperform. So I don't think it's a really what great is argument. The, what is the premium that they deserve? I mean, as an investor, you still want to be disciplined, even though they outperform. I mean, it's, it's not at any price. It's not at any valuation, I would think. Well, I think it is because uh, it you, is. You, you, you should look at, you know, I think you have to, you have to differentiate the defensive sectors a little bit. Uh, Obviously, with real estate utilities, there's a huge bond component. And I would argue that relative to everything that's tied to the bond markets, actually real estate utilities don't look that expensive relative to long-term treasuries or things like that, or, or, or uh, high-yield high yield bonds and things like that. Um, but in general, if you look at this, there's this very strong history. People always want to say, this time is different. Look at this company dynamic here. Healthcare's got all these political issues right now. But go back and look at the history of that sector's relative performance. When it has massive outperformance, uh, it's, it's during uh, periods where the profit cycle is slowing. And when it has massive underperformance, it's when usually early in the cycle when you see a massive pickup in earnings out of a profits recession. So I think that's still going to be the most important thing. And that's what we're looking at today is increasing risks of a profits recession. I think that's the most important thing. Now, I'm not saying now, buy now for the next five years, you know, hold your nose. Uh, there will be points that if you start to see signs that the profit cycle comes back, Absolutely. Those are not the things to own. But for the time, be- for the time being, I think it makes a lot of sense, uh, regardless of, of the valuations, so long as the fundamentals are holding up. And, and the fundamentals for those sectors are actually holding up pretty well, you know, especially healthcare, which has underperformed this year. I mean, it's got some of the best earnings revision trends, some of the best sales growth trends, uh, you know, some of the best pr- uh, beats relative to expectations. So, and it's actually trading cheap relative to history. Dan, thank you. Good to see Thanks, you. Guys. Dan Suzuki of RBA. Loved I know you Dan. loved it. Well, because he's well, been all the time. I mean. Yeah, well, we chatted off camera. I think Dan makes excellent points. I mean, I have to say that because he agreed with me. But, it, you know, Con Edison making an all-time high today up 2% on a lousy tape is great for Con Edison. But you have to say to yourself, does this make sense in the context of a broader market? So I agree. I mean, I think... You're hanging your hat on fewer and fewer things. And if you think the Fed is somehow going to bail us all out, you have to ask yourself, is the Fed the fireman that's putting out the fire 
Are they the arsonists that's adding gas? I would suggest it's the uh, latter. All right. Well, speaking of safe haven and defensive plays, the dollar hitting a two-year high today. Take a look at the action in the metals. Gold spiking to a six-year high. Silver touching levels not seen since 2016 as a global sell-off had investors rushing to safety. Our next guest says this red-hot trade could get even hotter. Let's go off the charts with Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com. Hey, Todd, what are you looking at? Hey, Melissa. Yeah, let's take a look at the metals here. First, gold. I think it's really important to go back and look at what we've done here in the last two decades. I'm sure you guys on the desk can remember. I do trading gold at about $250 an ounce. Well, we've come up a long way. We've been in a little bit of consolidation. The recent run is this is it. The one thing I'd I'd note here is we did break above the 2016 high in gold, uh, right about 1380. We're currently trading about 1560. Just from a technical point of view, if you get up through that 1700 from the technicals that we study, the implications are you might finally get that sustained two handle in gold. I have GLD, hold it in my portfolio, not so much more on the options, but just in the holding. So I continue to like it in either an up or down stock market. Silver, really interesting. Again, that 2016 peak, we've not yet eclipsed that. That's at about $21 in silver, about 19 and change right now. So I do think there are there is more room to go in silver. Now, keep in mind, silver has got industrial uses as well as precious metal properties. So it could go again. And if somehow the, the, the broader markets were to recover in terms of equities, One thing that I find really interesting here, and there's a lot of talk in the precious metals right now, is the gold-silver ratio. And this has a long-standing macro, kind of a long-standing macro indicator. Basically, when gold gets up about 90 times the value of silver, the gold-silver ratio is deemed to be overbought. And when that's happened, you've seen a significant buy signal in silver. So first here, let me draw that 90 level up around there in the gold-silver ratio. First one is back here, early 2000, you peaked out. Nice little bump there in silver. Same thing again here. Peaked up around 95. Nice little bump there in silver. Here we go again. Big breakout here. We're just starting to see silver move higher. So again, with that 2016 point at about 21, I feel like they want to go up and get those stops. So I don't have silver, but I'm looking to add on any pullbacks. Um, One thing, one market that's got obviously much more industrial use and that is signaling kind of deflationary trends right now is copper. Doesn't look bad technically, but from the models, again, that we follow to get context as to where we are, we're right at that decision point. We really, really need to hold about 2.5 here in copper. If you break down, that's going to be bad. And you guys are talking a lot about FX. Watch that Australian dollar against the U.S. dollar and the yen. They're both pressing lows, and if they do break along with copper, that that is certainly a risk-off kind of deflationary uh, indication. But if it wants to hold, I think we'll be okay, and we can kind of skate that. Todd, thanks. Good to see you. Todd Gordon, TradingAnalysis.com. I can see while Todd was talking, Dan, you were making the motion to sell silver. No, no. Well, I'm just saying that (laughs) I think when you have a situation like where you had this explosion where people have just woken up to what he's saying, Uh it's a pretty interesting situation. Very clearly, SLV could get back to the 2016 highs at 20 bucks. But understand, it just came from 14, you know, a couple months ago. So if you really are expecting copper to break down, the dollar to keep rallying, you know, all those sorts of kind of market mayhem sort of stuff, gold and silver are going to continue to work. Is this still Dr. Copper? uh, 
Sorry? Is it still, should we still call it Dr. Absolutely. Popper in its indicator? Well, the indicator, the indicator is very important to me right now because it, it's trading lower with the CRB ride. What is that? That's essentially your, your measure of all these core commodities. These are even some of the basic ones, resins, uh, things that are not even counted by most people. Um, that's cascading lower with yields. Um, you could make an argument that, that the yields are really the byproduct of that. But um, what I would say about silver, I agree with Dan, um, as much as it's underperformed gold, you're at a 90 RSA on a nine day. It's up 24 percent in 35 sessions. Um, it's still underperformed. Um, but copper is telling the story. And, and simply on gold, after five years of doing nothing and me being pretty bearish about gold around 1350, saying it was going to fail there. Um, the reason gold is rallying now is because of deflation, not inflation. And that's exactly the reason why I think it can continue to go higher along with silver at some point. But silver's overbought. Yeah, I think that's a fair argument. I also think, you know, it's, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the gold market's waking up, that central banks are just, they're impaling themselves, and they're not nearly as all-knowing as the market probably thought they were 10 years or so ago. Central banks, governments continue to buy gold. I mean, that's out there. You can look it up if you want. It's true. And to Tim's point, listen, freeport McMoran getting crushed. Cleveland Cliffs today down 14.5%. Steel stocks, I mean, U.S. Steel was a $42 stock, probably on its way to 45 in March of 2018, when these tariffs were announced, were supposed to be so great for steel companies, U.S. Steel now, I think, has an 11 handle. So, again, stocks are telling you something if you just want to pay attention. Coming up on Fast, a potential warning sign in the IPO market. What the ride-sharing companies did today, that could be a big red flag if you are looking to go public. But first, casino stocks dealing investors a losing hand after a big drop in Macau gambling revenue. Is it time to cut your losses? Stick with us. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the scene in Hong Kong from over the weekend. Protests turning violent as demonstrators clashed with police. It was one of the most violent weeks yet in the months-long stand-up. The turmoil now taking a big toll on nearby Macau. Gaming revenue seeing their biggest drop of the year in August. Shares of Wynn Resorts, Las Vegas Sands, MGM all down today as a result. So with tensions escalating in Hong Kong, should you steer clear of these China-exposed casino stocks? Tim? It depends on if you think we, we are kind of in the late part of this this uh, altercation, which mm-hmm. you know a lot of people believe has to be decided by the time you have the Communist National Party event in October. Um, I, I think if you look at the dramatic turnaround in Macau, which was rallying, part of the reason this has been so, uh, I think, extraordinary on the stock prices of these names is because you actually had recovery in Macau through May. Uh, this has been a, an about face. I don't think you need to do anything here. I have to say that I think Wynn is probably one of the ultimate trade war stocks, um, and therefore uh, that's your call. I, I think it will continue to be vulnerable, and I think this is probably a, a period where we, we don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. Well, even if even if uh, Hong Kong is resolved, we still have the trade war. Still have the trade war. So you have, you have obviously the headwinds there, but then you ask yourself, you know, when is it the lower end of the range we've seen maybe since the fall or so? You know, this 100 to 105 level seems to be held up relatively well. I mean, obviously in this environment, bringing up valuation is somewhat moot, I would think, but to Tim's point, if you think we're in the you know, late innings of this thing, which... I don't, but if you do, I think win at 105 is really interesting here. I wonder, you know, we saw the drop in, this is for August. Yep. And in Hong Kong, we saw retail sales down by 11% in the month of July. Uh-huh. And you got to wonder if you extrapolate <laughs> what happened in Hong Kong to retail sales in the month of August. Right. I mean, I remember retail sales, I remember SARS many years ago, mm-hmm. and it seemed disastrous, and the numbers were horrible, no one was going outside, no one was shopping, and stores were closed, and... 
Because to Tim's point, if you think that's a fleeting issue, then definitely buy. But I, I don't I don't think it's fleeting. I don't think it's over yet. Well, Hong Kong PMIs were 43 two months ago. So, I mean, they were 10-year lows, and it, it's certainly not going to get better in the right. short to medium term. But but I, I do think Macau-related is, is, is something. This can't smolder through October. It, there's no way either China's going to let this happen or it's going to continue to go on. That's just the pragmatist in me saying this. And, and therefore, something I think we'll have to give. Coming up, investors are pumping the brakes on Uber and Lyft. We'll tell you why the sell-off may be signaling an even bigger warning sign for the IPO space. Plus, shares of Palo Alto under pressure with the rest of the market today. And options traders are betting the pain is just getting started. We've got that and much more after this quick break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Quick programming note here. Catch our documentary, High Risk, High Reward, Cannabis, Inc. Find out why some experts are sounding the alarm on the booming cannabis industry. That's Wednesday, tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, we are following a developing story on Uber, the stock falling more than 5% in today's session. We're getting new details on one of Uber's biggest investors. CNBC's senior technology reporter Ari Levy has the story. Ari. Yeah, well, Melissa, Uber bought more than $1 billion worth of shares at $48.77 and $6.5 billion worth of shares at close to $33. All of those shares are now underwater, with the stock closing at a record low today, below $31. Add it all up, and SoftBank, which is Uber's largest shareholder, is down more than $600 million on its original investment from early 2018. If you remember, that's when the Vision Fund bought shares from a number of existing investors, including then-CEO Travis Kalanick and Benchmark Capital. And it was really the centerpiece of SoftBank's effort to create a global transportation portfolio with big ride-hailing companies from across the globe, as well as meal delivery and logistics companies. Another problem for SoftBank is it was supposed to get two board seats along with its investment. But because of an extended review by CFIUS into the foreign investment, those seats never materialized, and the ability to get those seats expired with Uber's IPO in May. So for now, Uber has no board seats, a deteriorating investment, and really not much it can do to to exercise its influence. Back to you, Melissa. When is the lockup expiration, Ari? Because all this seems to point to me, at least, that there might be investors who would be inclined to sell. Uh, the lockup should be in November, right? That's six months from the mm-hmm. IPO. Uh, you would imagine there would be some selling pressure, but at this price, you really don't know because perhaps you know, they're going to wait it out and hope for some, some uh, rebound. All right. Ari, thank you. Ari Levy in San Francisco. For more on the story, on Ari's story specifically, head on over to CNBC.com. Um, well, it wasn't just Uber. We should mention Lyft also having a rough time today. So are these recent IPOs flashing a big warning signal for some upcoming debuts like we work, and it really shows you here the SoftBank example that a big investor could invest and still be underwater after, you know, a year plus. Yeah, so interesting with SoftBank, obviously they have a ton of money and they have a long time horizon. Um, and so, for instance, most times VCs who are in early investments, right, they give it seven years, eight years, nine years, then they go public, and then they find that exit six months, 12 months after the IPO. Here's a scenario where there's these massive growth funds that they're investing along the way. I suspect that um, SoftBank's not particularly worried right now. When they made that investment last year, you know what I mean? They weren't going to exit right after the IPO. But what it does say to investors, normally this is when uh, retail buys these things that they have not had the opportunity to get into, but we know that there was a lot of secondary stock and a lot of people own these things other than massive things like the Vision Fund. So to me, when you see these stocks with no end in sight to the downside, it really does speak to the fact that this is the most risk-off thing that you could see right now because people don't know where the bottom is. There's no real price discovery. They've been only trading for a few months, and there's no valuation support either. Well, we don't know how these companies will do in hard times either. I mean, these were started 
during good times and have operated in an environment of, of almost free money. Well, it's certainly a free money. So if you talk about the capital market cycle, um, I, I think this has been a once in a lifetime period for private equity. Um, and, and so whether capital uh, right now, it's getting easier and easier. There's more liquidity that's being flooded out there. Uh, credit spreads haven't fallen apart. I think you also get into just the core business model. What happens in a recessionary environment for the growth of these guys? Um, but, but make no mistake, a lot of bad decisions are made when money is free. Uh, and, and I'm not going to blame SoftBank or anybody for making bad decisions. I'll just say that a lot of companies raise a lot of money. Yeah, there's a saying the worst decisions are made in the best of times. And so that might be just past now. I mean, I don't know how much today was on this issue in California about whether or not the employees are can be independent contractors or not. Maybe that's some of it. But I think the money losing nature of the business is far more problematic. It certainly makes you wonder about WeWork. Right. I mean, that is a more difficult sell than, than Uber or Lyft. I mean, I would think that during hard times, the first thing to go would be the shortest lease that you have, and that's got to be your we, that's a we work, right? It doesn't augur well, but I mean, it's, it's amazing. So I think Lyft reported on August 8th, and we sat here saying what a great report it was, and it was. They had a pr- pathway to profitability. We talked about it. Stock was trading, I think, 63 in the aftermarket. We were cautious because the lockup was coming up mm-hmm. within a couple of weeks. But then Uber reported and said, you know, Lyft is even better. I am, listen, we thought it would sell off a little bit, but here we are now at 45 in Lyft, and I think it's just getting lumped in with the rest. I mean, that quarter on its own, in my opinion, was a very good quarter. And although I never thought it would get here, I think Lyft is just too cheap at 45 Well, I, I think what the market's telling you right now about Uber and Lyft is they're really one company. And when you think about what their product is, you just mentioned riders. Every Uber that I get into the city has a Lyft. Every Lyft I get into the city has an Uber. So what is the differentiation other than price? We got excited about the metrics for Lyft because there's a more rational pricing environment right now. Um, so at the end of the day, Mel, you just said, what happens to these companies with unproven business models? Well, they consolidate, ultimately, is really what happens. And, you know, to me, I actually think Lyft Lyft is the most interesting part of the story because it's just a pure play on what I think is probably the best demographic, which is the United States, for uh, ride hail. You know, and that's only where they're focused. All right. Up next, Palo Alto gearing up for quarter earnings tomorrow. But options traders are betting on danger for the cybersecurity stock. We'll break down the action ahead. We're live at the Nasdaq in Times Square. Much more fast money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for some networking. Palo Alto Networks reports earnings tomorrow, and the options market is predicting the cybersecurity giant could get slashed. Dan Nathan's over at the Plaza with the action. Dan. Yeah, Mel, like you said, Palo Alto reports tomorrow after the close. Um, the implied move in the options market is about 7.5%, about $15 in either direction. That's a little bit rich to the four-quarter average move uh, of about 4.5%. Um, one trade that caught my eye, the most active put strikes today, it looked like an accumulation of the September 6th, this Friday expo. 202 half, $202.50, um, 185 put spread, buying that for about $5 in small lots, about 1400 traded on the day. That's looking for a move between uh, 197.50 down to 185, which is basically in line with that implied movement. And when you see this kind of short dated put buying in front of an earnings event like um, like this in Palo Alto, you want to go to the chart here. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's the one-year chart. This thing has obviously been in a bit of a downtrend here. This $200 level is pretty good support uh, dating back to late last year. And I just want to go to the five-year chart just to show you how important this 
$200 level is. That was the high all the way back in 2014. Look where you take that thing down to. It's This is 200 bucks um, right here. So this could be a long holder heading into this event, understanding it could be potentially volatile and looking for some near-term protection. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. Dan Aiden with the Options Action. For more Options Action, live shows this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take a look at how the day ended. Stocks tumbling to kick off September. Dow and Nasdaq dropping more than a percent. Not final trade, but Guy, tomorrow, first thing in the morning, what are you watching? I'm looking at the gold market. That's been the tell. Is gold higher? I mean, if gold's higher tomorrow, again, I think it doesn't particularly, um, it's not particularly favorable for the broader market. So gold market to me. Final trade time. Tim Seymour. So I'm looking at health care. And United Health is now too much political overhang in this valuation. It moved from 270 down to 230. I think you're at 14 times 2020. Gets you to be about a $270 stock. Uh, I like UNH here. Chairwoman. Yes. Uh, you know, to talk about all the things that can go wrong, if the VIX is below 20, which it is right now, I'd be buying more S&P puts. Dan. Yeah, so we talked about some things that you want to keep an eye on in the stock market. Uh, regional banks, the KRE, that's one of them. I think you want to be careful with that one. Kate. We've danced around Constellation Brands. Look at the move since June. Very quietly up significantly, STZ. Hmm. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.